A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello and welcome to the show. I'm kind of excited. This is the last show of 2020. And if 2020 is any indicator, it might be my last show ever. No, I don't know. Um, Actually, I'm kind of optimistic that uh, we have some good things ahead of us. I think this next year is going to have challenges just like 2020 had. Maybe some even a little steeper, but... I'm I'm excited for what lies ahead. I'm excited for some of the things that are going on. Uh, before I go any further, I have to tell you that I am greatly appreciative of the sponsors of my program. At this point, I have two incredible sponsors, Alta Bank, as well as Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I've uh, conveniently provided links that will connect you with these great businesses, and I hope that you will uh, show some love to them for supporting me. I also want to send a quick uh, shout-out and thank you to, to those of you among my listeners who have chosen to become patrons of this show. I mean, some people donate as little as 99 cents a month. Some do $5 or $10 a month. I so appreciate that you believe enough in what I'm trying to do here that uh, you are willing to to step up and actually like vote with your wallet to help make it possible. And my pledge to you is that uh, I treat those funds as as sacred currency, meaning uh, I don't get to go out and blow it on, you know, a, a new sports car and things like that. Not that I wouldn't like to, but uh, the the message of freedom the message of free markets, of freedom of conscience, of private property, of, of your personal autonomy. That's the message I want to give. The message that you and I can see the world as it is, that we can have influence in ways we may not have considered. To the contrary of all those other sources out there telling us, be afraid, be fearful, clamor for more help, call upon the government to do this for you and do that for you. Just surrender your freedoms and we'll make you secure. I've got a different message, and I believe it's, it's, a, it's a better message. I believe it's a message that, uh, that actually brings greater happiness than some of the competing ones out there. And, and I wish I could say, and it all originated with me. It didn't. I just happen to be one of the torchbearers at the moment. But for those of you who make it possible for me to focus my efforts on this, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for, for helping me live up to what I consider a a, a calling to to be one of those voices that you can count on to bring truth and light to the best of my ability. I can't tell you how humbling it is, what an honor it is. And and every time someone says, look, I just want to make sure that, you know, I want to help out and make sure that you're able to do this. It is such a huge relief and, and such a huge help. So thank you. Let's dive right in. I don't know what 2021 has in store for us as far as fate. (laughs) But I do know this. Every single one of us has the ability to make the world a better place in this coming year through our own choices. Now, look, I understand the frustration people are feeling is very real. And and trust me, it is so easy. And I've done it so many times myself. The best thing I can do when I'm feeling frustrated is sit down and I can start griping. 
And I do it, even though I try not to. I still find myself doing it from time to time. But in reality, there are things you and I do have control over. And in the time we spend and the moral energy we spend wasted on, you know, just complaining or or condemning or blaming or trying to, you know, point out the enemy. The more we allow ourselves to be enemy driven, the less effective we are at actually affecting real change that makes the world better. But I don't want you to take my word for it because I'm a nobody. I'm just a guy with a microphone and and, uh, you know, some very fortunate circumstances where I have a little platform here from which I can speak. I want you to hear what Lawrence W. Reed, Larry Reed, at least that's what he asked me to call him during the time that we were producing his Read Hour podcast. He has 11 ideas easily implemented at the individual level that could make the world a better place in the new year. Now, this is actually a a piece that was published back in, uh, well, January 1st, 2019, so two years ago. But he says, just imagine how much better life would be if we all worked on these 11 simple things. And then he asks, can you think of a good reason not to? So, I don't know what resolutions, if any, that you've made. (laughs) If, if, If you haven't made resolutions or you're averse to making resolutions, that's okay. Larry Reed says, I'm as guilty as anybody when it comes to overly ambitious resolutions. He says, I've broken enough of them that maybe I should just say Happy New Year and leave it at that. But he says, I think there's value in aspiration. The late advertising executive Leo Burnett put it famously well when he said, if you reach for the stars, you may not always get one, but you won't come up with a handful of mud either. Benjamin Franklin offered advice, perhaps the best advice for a new year that anybody ever gave. Be at war with your vices at peace with your neighbors, and let every new year find you a better man, or woman, of course, Larry adds. So he says, I've come up with a few of my own personal resolutions, but I'd like to propose some for all of us. So for this new year, he says, we can make our respective neighborhoods and countries even better ones if each of us takes them to heart. So let's resolve, number one, to criticize less and encourage more. A kind word usually goes much further than a harsh or hasty judgment. We could all get by with less negativity. Secondly, to count our own blessings, not the other guys, and do it regularly. Studies show that cultivating a grateful spirit improves both your mental and physical health. Number three, to improve our personal character. Okay, now for for a lot of people, my reaction is, okay, so what does that mean? I want to improve my personal character. Here's the answer. Our truthfulness Patience, courage, honesty, responsibility, self-reliance, and introspection before we set out to reform the world. If everybody did this, the world would, by definition, be reformed. I think Jordan B. Peterson actually puts it a little more succinctly and just basically says, make your own bed. (laughs) Just, you know, get your own house in order before you go start telling everybody else, hey, this is what you ought to be doing and snapping your fingers and expecting them to do it. Number four, Larry Reed suggests we should resolve to clean up our language, especially in front of youngsters. Foul language, ever more common in public these days, sets a lousy standard. Now, look, I'm not going to pretend that, well, you know, of course, you will never hear me say a swear word. If you're around me when I'm under extreme stress, you're probably going to hear me say words that my mother would not be proud to hear me say. And I'm ashamed of that. It's a terrible habit. And, and it is a habit. It's, it's, a, it's a very difficult habit to break. But 
There is a kind of a cardinal rule that I live by, and and I, I do this in my broadcasts. I do this on social media. I may feel very strongly about something, but I will not resort to profanity. And it's not because I'm so pious and just so much better than everybody else, but there's a respect that I want to convey to my audience. Even though I know you're big boys and girls and you can handle hearing swear words and maybe you even use swear words yourself. There's a respect for you that I wish to convey by trying to get my point across without having to use foul language. And though, again, I'm, I'm guilty of having a potty mouth, especially in moments of, of great stress or when I hurt myself. <laughs> I think it's shameful. When people start to to use that kind of language in public, and it's been very revealing to see just how far we've devolved as a society. When you see politicians and and other public figures openly using that foul language, I mean, dropping F-bombs left and right with no thought of, you know, TV cameras or media presence there, they don't care. Look at uh, look at some of the groups that have been protesting throughout this year on their marches just chanting filth and shouting filth at everybody. It doesn't, to me, convey a strength of conviction or powerful message. It conveys a a kind of uh, primitive anger that's desperately searching for an outlet. I automatically tune out people who have to resort to that in order to try to get their point across. So I'm not telling you Don't ever use a bad word, but I'm telling you, I think Larry's got a great suggestion here. Clean up that language, especially in front of youngsters. It's not about being pious, and it's not about, you know, look how how righteous and look how pure-hearted I am. It's more about, about, I just want to convey that I respect you enough that I I don't want to, to pull you down into the gutter with me while I try to make a point. Gutter language is not ennobling. It doesn't add to our understanding it may be all the rage in this song or that song, but uh, it's, it's not the pinnacle of human achievement and accomplishment. So let's stop pretending that it is. All right. I'm going to jump off the soapbox for a few minutes. Got to go stretch my legs, touch my toes, whatever. We'll come back and I'll share some more of uh, Larry Reed's modest proposals for the new year that just might make the world a better place. You are free to accept or reject them as you see fit. But I'll confess, every one of the ones he suggests makes a lot of sense to me. It's probably because I think Larry's a good living example of them. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. It is the final show of 2020. And I, and I almost feel like this sense of triumph in the, oh, we made it through. Ha, take that, 2020. <laughs> but I feel like I might be tempting fate. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll back, you know, the pride just a little bit. I won't thump my chest quite as hard. I will continue to share with you 11 modest proposals for the new year that just might make the world a better place. Like you, there's a lot I see out there that concerns me. There are a lot of things that frustrate me. Some make me just downright angry. But rather than wasting what precious moral energy I have and time I have on things that essentially amount to just griping, 
I'm going to follow Larry, uh, Larry Reed's advice and see what I can do to implement some things at the individual level. I don't need a congressional hearing or the approval of the executive office or the Supreme Court to sign off on this and say, yep, you're good. It's just stuff that I need to recognize as uh, within my grasp. And some of the things that he suggested so far, things like improving our personal character, counting our blessings, criticizing less, encouraging more, cleaning up our language. Every single one of those I can do without placing any kind of financial or moral obligation on anybody around me. And I have to believe, by power of example, they're still going to have some impact on the people around me. If nothing else, people will just find, hey, you're a little more pleasant to be around. That's my hope anyway. Number five on his list, Larry Reed suggests, we could make the world a better place if we help others who need and deserve it, by personally pitching in or supporting private organizations that do the job well. He suggests, for instance, the Salvation Army. He says you'll likely accomplish more good than by passing the buck and just voting for politicians who say they'll do it with other people's money. Now, I'm actually going to spend some time in, the, uh, in, in another segment of, of this hour talking about a friend of mine who I have watched with, with great admiration as she has personally launched a, an initiative of her own to provide sleeping bags, clothing, food, and help for the homeless population in Salt Lake City. And, and particularly as the weather has gotten colder, as winter has really set in, um, you know, it's, I don't think it's easy to be homeless. I've, I've never been homeless, but I can't imagine that it's easy, even when the weather is decent or moderate. And I can't imagine what it would be like trying to find shelter, trying to, you know, do what you needed to do to, to take care of yourself during the winter months. I'll be honest, the thought of it actually is, is kind of terrifying. And, and I have watched as, as this young woman has stepped out there. She doesn't have vast resources of her own, but she has great passion. And she has a, a very um, clear sense of caring for the people around her. She doesn't care if she gets credit for it. She doesn't care if other people think, well, you're never going to save them all. She's just trying to do what she can, and she has had a lot of impact, and a lot of people have stepped forward to help. What's her secret? Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll have to have her back on the show to talk about this, but uh, it's just she recognizes people who are in need. And she personally rolls up her sleeves and gets things done. And she does it with help from people who voluntarily say, I like what you're doing. I'm going to come and help. So, number six on the list, Larry Reed suggests read one or more good biographies of people who were or still are excellent examples of the virtuous life. He says, inspire yourself by learning of their accomplishments. In fact, he invites people email him if you'd like a list of some especially good ones. He's really well read, so he could recommend some fantastic ones. And yes, there is a link to this article in the show notes at the com. Number seven, he suggests go out of our way to show kindness to a pet. Also teach your children about the importance of kindness to animals. He says that's a great way to start them on the way to respecting all life, including that of our fellow humans. Okay, here's a really tough one, especially if you've had a tough year. Number eight, resolve to smile. A lot more than comedian W.C. Fields once advised, uh, a lot more than W.C. Fields once advised when he said, start every day with a smile and get it over with. 
It really does work. And by the way, even if you're wearing a mask, people can see in your eyes when you're smiling. They can hear it in your voice when you're smiling. I don't like masks either, but uh, but I do appreciate the people who are still capable of smiling, even if they're wearing one. Number nine, he suggests beautify something that otherwise gets ignored. For example, buff the sidewalk in front of your home. Pick up some litter on the street. Replace that unsightly aged mulch or even paint the faded siding on your house. Number 10, he suggests get to know your neighbors better. Okay, I've actually done better this year than I have in years past. And part of that has been out of necessity. I mean, part of it was when the lockdowns began. I actually went around and, and started talking to my neighbors, mainly to find out, do you guys have what you need? Is there, is there something we can help you with or something that we can keep an eye out for you? Diapers, you know, milk, meat, whatever it is that you guys might be running short of. I'm ashamed, though, that it took, you know, the, the seriousness of everything being shut down and runs on the grocery stores and shortages of certain kinds of commodities and food to get me to do that. I still could do better, but it really stings my heart when Larry asks, how many of us don't actually know the people who live two and three doors away? And by the way, you don't have to go impose yourself on them. If you're out and about, if you're walking the dog, if you're going to the mailbox or something like that, and you see them out, don't pretend I don't see you either and keep walking by. Just say hello. You might be surprised at some of the remarkable people that you get to know through this process. And it's not like you're asking anything of them, okay? You're not inviting them to your latest multi-level marketing meeting, I hope. (laughs) Don't do that. But get to know them better. And number 11, commit now to acquainting at least one person a month with the philosophy of liberty. Now, he explains what he means by this. This doesn't mean invite him in for a multi-level liberty marketing meeting, but he says, choose people you have reason to believe haven't heard the message before. Put careful thought into encouraging them to read an article or two or a book or come to an event that promotes that precious message of liberty. That's how we win the future. Now, he uses the term as missionaries for liberty, not cloistered monks. Of course, in my home state of Utah, you start talking about missionaries for liberty. People are like, ah, (laughs) you're going to come riding up on bicycles and knock on my door. I do think he's got the right idea here, though. I can't think of a higher compliment than to be known for your principles. And I don't mean like people roll their eyes like, oh, great. Here comes the old conspiracy theorist, you know, to tell us the latest way the U.N. is taking over our brains, you know. Um, Some people, you know, choose to make that the focus of what they're doing. I hope that's not me, but I would hope that uh, that people would understand when they have the opportunity to sit and talk with me at at some length or to, to have a deeper than, hey, how you doing? Great. See ya. You know, kind of conversation. That one of the takeaways they have is that guy really loves liberty. He really loves, you know, the things that, uh, that bring happiness into our lives. Not in a way that, uh, gee, it just makes him so much better than the rest of us, but just I can tell that that's something dear to his heart. That's how you inspire rather than require people to, to consider the message that you carry with you. And I'm guessing you probably wouldn't be listening to this program if 
you didn't carry that message with you at some level and have that desire for people to to check it out and to see for themselves. Larry Reed says, this is a start. These 11 simple things. Just imagine how much better life would be if we all worked on these 11 simple things. Can you think of any good reason not to? So kind of a positive note to consider the new year. You know there are going to be challenges. There are going to be good times and there will be bad times, but check out this article. It's in the show notes. Spread it around if you'd like. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Yeah, I'm definitely trying to take a positive note as we send 2020 off into the ages. And I have to confess, it's been a tough year in a lot of ways, you know, for obvious reasons. You know, the pandemic, the lockdowns, there have been changes and whatnot. Still, on a personal level, I look back at this year and there is a lot that I appreciate. In fact, I think among the some of the greatest blessings that I've ever received in my life have come this year. And, uh, you know, that I, I put at the top of that list, uh, I've actually added to my family. Yes, I've added a granddaughter, but I've also added, uh, you know, the, my biological parents and, and some, some half-siblings that I didn't even know were out there. I mean, I, I wondered, but this was the year I was able to, to actually get some questions answered and, and make some connections with no guarantee that it would be a positive thing or that it would, it would even happen for that matter. But it did. And so while I know it's tempting and a lot of people are looking back, you know, well, 2020, looking at it with the, with a sense of uh, anger and, you know, we will spit every time we say that name in the future. I'm just speaking for myself, but this has been a pretty amazing year. My life has been changed for the better in spite of some of the ugly stuff that's gone on. I haven't been spared. So don't don't accuse me of being Pollyanna, but I, I definitely have uh, definitely have had a lot of things for which I can be very, very grateful. All right. I want to talk about sledding, particularly slippery slopes. Now, you if, if you're listening to me, you're probably old enough that you remember a time when fresh snow meant opportunity, right? There was probably a hill in town if you lived somewhere that got regular snow where you knew you could go and spend some time enjoying gravity. I was lucky enough as a kid growing up in Salt Lake City to be able to uh, regularly go to Sugar House Park where there was a nice, big, long hill and it was a very popular sledding spot. And uh, wow, just, you know, here's the funny thing, though. (laughs) Everywhere I've lived that's had a great sledding spot, I don't think I've ever gone sledding without coming home injured in some way. Usually it was pretty minor bumps and bruises. A couple times I had some really serious whiplash and, you know, sprung ribs the whole nine yards. Knocked myself out once. Uh, gee, it was uh, it was quite an experience. But I wouldn't trade it for anything. And now we find ourselves on this slippery slope where would you believe 
that one of the most beloved winter pastimes is in danger of being banned. Why? Well, because the safety of the children may be at stake here. Now, Lenore Skenazy, who is known as uh, the, the, the guru on free-range parenting, in other words, instead of being a helicopter parent and hovering over your child and, you know, having to assign a security detail every time they want to go to the playground, let your kids go out and explore on their own terms and according to, you know, what they're capable of. It's not just, you know, kicking an infant out there in the wilderness. Well, good luck if you survive. I guess you're ours, you know. Um, she is warning that a friend had just uh, contacted her. They were noodling around the AccuWeather site and found a blog post called Why Have Midwestern Cities Banned a Beloved Winter Pastime? Now, Lenore Skenazy says the piece, which seems like it might just sit in a slush pile on AccuWeather's news desk and await recycling every snow season, discusses a few horrible sledding injury lawsuits that drained the coffers of Omaha, Nebraska and Sioux City, Iowa. And then it adds, according to a study from the Center for Injury Research and Policy, at Nationwide Children's Hospital, more than 20,000 Americans younger than age 19 receive treatment for sledding-related injuries each year. It then goes on to offer tips from the National Safety Council. To ensure safety, the group suggests that parents ensure all sledding equipment is in good condition with no cracks or sharp edges. The council also suggests sledding spacious, gently sloping hills with a level runoff at the end so the sled can safely stop. And to inspect the slopes prior to check uh, for gaps, fences, or anything else that could obstruct the ride. Finally, do not leave kids under age 10 to sled unattended. The article warns it only by sleds with brakes and steering mechanisms. I mean, we used plastic toboggans. We used inner tubes. Garbage can lids, if that's what it took. I mean, holy cow. Lenore Skenazy says, turning a sickly shade of green with pointy fingers and an evil grin, she says, I must now rant about everything that's wrong with this article, this advice, this country, go big or go to Whoville, this world. So what is Grinchifying me? She says, well, there are six things. Number one, that people can sue towns when kids get hurt sledding. This forces the towns to simply ban it as it's not worth the financial risk. But is a town always to blame when someone gets hurt? This belief that there's a culprit and a potential pot of gold behind every injury means every person in group has to adopt a cover-your-butt mentality and forbid a number of normal activities for fear of litigation. By the way, if you haven't seen her article, Principal versus Mom, Who Decides How Kids Get Home? That's about a school that won't let kids walk home without a chaperone. Number two, she says the helpful advice that makes it sound like parents should spend days hunting for the perfect hill that they must then minutely inspect as if for landmines. Can kids even select their own hill? Number three, the statement that then the parents have to stick around for a decade until their kids are 10. Number four, the idea that parents also have to check the equipment for sharp edges, etc., she says this advice, this kind of advice is always changing how we think of kids, always endangered, and parents, always on high alert, and stuff, always untrustworthy, unless brand new. Number five, the feeling that experts are racking their brains for yet another thing to warn parents about, but they forgot yellow snow. And number six, the source of this advice. Nationwide is a hospital named for the insurance company that gifted it with $50 million. Now, the hospital routinely turns out papers on the dangers of everything. A cynic might even claim, wonder if they are busy labeling everything hazardous just so they don't have to pay out insurance claims. Because, hey, the public was warned. 
So here's a partial list of studies conducted by Nationwide Hospital's Dr. Gary Smith. Microwave oven-related injuries treated in hospital emergency departments in the United States, 1990 to 2010. Softball injuries treated in U.S. emergency departments, 1994 to 2010. Pediatric volleyball-related injuries. Pediatric inflatable bouncer-related injuries. Sledding-related injuries among children. Safety interventions and liquid laundry detergent packet exposures. Stair-related injuries to young children. And possibly her favorite, children treated in United States emergency departments for door-related injuries, 1999 to 2008. She says, scary to think that some kids might not only go sledding on an improperly sloping hill on a sled with an improperly sanded plank, but then also come inside passing through a door. To sum up, the advice seems to be your kids are in horrible danger if you let them do the fun thing you used to do. Take precautions, say your prayers, buy insurance and have fun. <laughs> Look, I don't think she's she's encouraging anybody to be reckless, but it, it sounds like she's definitely saying, people, let's have a little bit of perspective. Now, I'll grant you, sledding was definitely one of the things we did that carried a degree of danger. And I'll come back to the idea. I can't remember very many trips where I was sledding or inner tubing that didn't end with an injury. But that was one of the least dangerous things we did in terms of winter recreation. We snowmobiled and and. Boy, you want to talk about some heinous injuries? Yeah, snowmobiles can do quite a number. We hooky bobbed. That was actually probably my favorite. I mean, I shudder right now to think, you know, there was a time in my life when uh, my mom would be saying, well, you need some winter shoes before you go out. Do you think I wanted some good warm boots with a good heavy, you know, sole on them that could grip on the snow and ice so I could walk without slipping? Oh, no, man. I wanted the smoothest, slickest Sunday-type shoes, you know, going to church shoes or, or boots that had the slickest bottom possible. Why? Because I wanted to slide down hills. I wanted to grab onto the bumper of a passing car and, you know, drag along behind it, hooky-bobbing. I think the statute of limitations is up. It's probably been a while since I've done that. But uh, that's the kind of stuff we used to do. Was it dangerous? Yes! Did we do it anyway? You're darn right. We threw snowballs at cars. That wasn't a good idea either, but we did it. You know, there are some things that you just have to learn through experience. The folly of throwing snowballs at cars, uh, I I learned the hard way. Uh, I had a perfect, huge snowball ready to go. And my friend was walking in front of me just enough. It was nighttime, and he was walking just enough to kind of block me from the view of the driver who was coming in the oncoming car. So at the very last second, before they could do anything, I would just simply heave this huge snowball out from behind him, and it would just land right on the windshield of their car. It was perfect. I had it planned so perfectly. But like a dummy, or maybe on purpose, he didn't tell me. It was a cop that was coming towards us. So, yeah, I let go with the snowball. And let's just say we all got a little education that night as to what appropriate behavior is and isn't when walking down a snow-covered street. That lesson must have stuck because I don't think I've thrown a snowball at a car since. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Once again, I want to send my love and admiration to Alta Bank. That's my friend, John Staples. He is one of their mortgage officers, and I appreciate him being one of the sponsors of this show. Also, thanks to Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. That's my buddy, uh, Steve Burgess. Look, if you are looking for a refinance of your home mortgage, maybe you're looking for a new home mortgage, John can take care of you. And I've got the contact link right there in today's show notes. Likewise, if you have a business and you have need for commercial insurance, It can be really tricky knowing that you've got all the different angles covered that you need to have covered. That's where Steve can help you. Easy to contact them both. You just look on the show notes right at the bottom of the page. Sponsor links. Boom. Follow those links and it'll take you right to them. Just be sure to tell them thank you for being sponsors of this program. Okay, so I mentioned earlier in the hour that I have watched a friend of mine. Uh, This is primarily through Facebook. I have watched her uh, head up this crusade to try to help the homeless in Salt Lake City. And and granted, you know, well, is she buying them houses, setting them up in apartments of their own? Nope. Nope. Her work is much more practical. She's uh, helping them obtain sleeping bags, coats, food, you know, clothing to help them get through these really wicked cold nights. And I know there are others who are looking at, well, how can we help? And and one of the things that I've heard proposed that, uh, you know, politicians seem to latch onto this because they're like, oh, great. I can throw other people's money at it because that's what they do really well. Spend other people's money. And that is UBI, universal basic income. Now, I think Stockton, California, um, earlier this year uh, said that they were going to start paying everybody, you know, or at least everybody who qualified a certain amount of money just simply for the fact that, hey, you're processing oxygen. You deserve this. And I think it's probably well intended, but there's a great article on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. This is from Charles Blaine. Universal basic income fails to get to the root of urban poverty. He says, in an effort to reduce poverty in their cities, 11 mayors have signed on to a push to guarantee a basic income for the more than 5 million people they collectively represent. First city to move forward on this was Stockton, California, but that initiative has gained more steam given the unemployment uptick due to coronavirus-related government shutdowns of the private sector. Now, he admits, while the policy is well-intentioned, It's far from the most effective way to eradicate poverty in America's cities and in the long term could have unintended consequences on the exact people the mayors hope to help. As COVID-19 began to wreak havoc across the country, state and local governments started shutting down businesses within their borders and economists predicted a massive uptick in unemployment and ultimately poverty rates. Well, unemployment did increase, but because of an influx of government aid, We have yet to see a corresponding increase in poverty rates. But that's just a delay, not a fix. Those rates will increase as government aid starts to trail off. So to combat that, a group of mayors have started the push for a guaranteed income within their cities. I actually got got a message from a friend of mine who has been crunching numbers on this for years. And he sent me a chart. I was sitting there trying to, to figure it all out because it's, it's a fairly detailed chart. But the bottom line is, you know, there are still over 20 million people nationwide getting jobless benefits. And his response to that was, can you say double dip recession? 
He says these numbers are still orders higher than normal. And he says, I wonder what things will be like when free money goes away or what's more likely doesn't buy you much. This isn't to scare you, but it's to get you thinking in terms of, okay, what are some of the possible unforeseen consequences? Simply throwing money at the problem isn't going to make it go away. Like just like, you know, putting putting a Band-Aid on the wound isn't isn't treating the wound or, you know, taking care of what caused it in the first place. Now, Stockton's mayor, Michael Stubbs, implemented their uh, universal basic income policy back in uh, 2019. And Stockton's program provides roughly 130 residents in the city who make below the median income a $500, no strings attached, stipend. Initial research shows that most of those who received the funding spent it on day-to-day expenses, things like transportation or utilities, health care, or debt. And following Stubbs' lead, the mayors of Newark, New Jersey, Columbia, South Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia, Compton, California, St. Paul, Minnesota, Los Angeles, Jackson, Mississippi, Shreveport, Louisiana, Oakland, California, and Tacoma, Washington have all formed the Mayors for a Guaranteed Income Coalition. Now, Chicago, Newark, and Atlanta have formally formed task forces to explore the issue, and Milwaukee City Council approved a guaranteed income pilot program. But one glaring problem with allowing this program to exist for any extended period of time is that unless it's privately funded, it would be too expensive to maintain and it would require substantial tax increases across the board. The group's page even admits this by saying, well, there's a number of ways to pay for guaranteed income from a sovereign wealth fund in which citizens benefit from shared national resources like the Alaska Permanent Fund to bringing tax rates on the wealthiest Americans to their 20th century historical averages. Tax increases on businesses and wealthy individuals could lead to a reduction in investment in other areas, like skills training, which can in turn lead to a less, less skilled workforce, as noted in a study by the National Bureau of Economic Research. Now, the other problem is that while the initial amount may lower today's burden on cash-strapped families, as, how, as uh, housing costs continue to increase in these cities and metropolitan areas, but the cost of living will go up as well. So unless that guaranteed income tracks with the cost of living, it's not going to take long until uh, this will be of little effect to the families who need that support most. As noted in Urban Reform Institute's annual standard of living index, 80% of the cost of living can be attributed to housing costs. Housing costs are driven up by excessive regulation, especially in major metro areas. The ever-increasing cost of housing is often blamed on the market, But in most metropolitan areas, guess what? It isn't truly the free market. Instead, it's a market artificially inflated by government regulation. Cities issuing fewer building permits limit the housing supply. Mandating minimum parking requirements on a new development reduces the amount of square footage for a home or a business. And minimum lot size requirements prohibit large lots from being subdivided for multiple units. All of these drive up the cost of development, which is then passed on to the renter or the buyer. In many areas of the country, like San Jose or San Francisco, San Diego or Los Angeles, regulations have driven up costs so much that a few middle-income households can even qualify, that few middle-income households households rather even qualify for a mortgage on a median-priced house. 
A $500 per month guaranteed income does not reduce the cost of living. It acts as a substitute that draws attention away from the actual problem. And the article concludes by noting mayors across the country have tools to address the cost of living and increase the standard of living for constituents in their areas. Until they act on that, no amount of government funding or subsidies will eradicate poverty within their borders. This is from Charles Blaine, founder and executive director of Urban Reform, a Houston-based nonprofit focused on free market solutions to urban issues. Now, I know this is going to scare some people, but I think the the overregulation, including zoning laws can be a big part of this. I just I was reading an article this morning of a woman who uh, had graduated from school and because she was trying to stay out of debt found a tiny home. And if you're not familiar with these, I'd recommend Google it. See what you can find out about them. Tiny homes are usually very small, just several hundred square feet and entirely self-contained. And she bought one for she got a low interest loan for I think $29,000 and put this tiny home on her parents' property in New Hampshire. Even tucked it back in the bushes where, you know, it's it's not even, it's hardly even noticeable. Except one of the neighbors did notice and ratted her out, dropped a dime on her to the local zoning authorities who issued her a piece of paper saying, you either get that thing out of there um, or else. We'll start fining you and eventually, you know, you could face criminal charges. Now, she asked, what would it take? to be in compliance. And they came up with a litany of reasons. Well, it's too close to the property lines. It doesn't have, you know, the proper building, the occupancy permit, because you did this without asking our permission first. She, by the way, was told, don't go ask for permission first, because they're just going to want to make you jump through more and more hoops. And it turns out that was true. So they denied it. Um, it's, it's money. It's a place she can't even live. And I think one of the excuses they gave is, well, it might negatively impact people's property rights. Now, look, if you can prove that that tiny home is causing harm to you, that would be something to take up in court as a civil action. But otherwise, that sure has the feel of just, you know, meddling on the part of government. It was a workable solution. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't encroaching on anybody else's property. Her folks gave her permission. But she couldn't get the permission of the bureaucrats in her locale. And that made the difference. This is The Brian Hyde Show.